Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I am in the Score Studios with fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? What up is that it is July 1st. Happy Canada Day to our Canadian listeners. Happy three days before Independence Day to our American listeners. Happy free agency to our listeners in general. And it has been quite the whirlwind of a 24 hours. There were, I believe it was 48 signings and more than $3 billion worth of contracts agreed to in the first eight hours of free agency alone. Pretty much every notable name is off the board with the exception of the biggest name, Kawhi Leonard. Uh, Bookie Cousins still on the board. Guys like Danny Green still on the board, but even that caliber of player has pretty much vanished already because they're being scooped up. So we're just going to bounce around the league and talk about this insane amount of activity that's happened Talk about some winners, some losers, some bizarre conspiracy theories on NBA Reddit that we'll get to later. Um, so, I mean, I'm assuming we're starting in Brooklyn, but I don't know. You, you tell me where you're taking me right now. Where are we starting? I'm fine with that. Yeah, I mean, like, probably they had the biggest night out of anybody. Um, you know, they land two max players, one of whom is probably going to miss the entirety of next season. Um and who knows what he'll look like when he returns. But I think if you are crowning a clear winner of the first day of free agency, I, I feel like it has to be the Nets. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, first of all, like for them to have, to have gotten to the place that they <laughs> find themselves in where they're adding two superstars and a guy who is, you know, when healthy... Again, we don't know what Durant's going to look like when he comes back, but when healthy, arguably the best player in all of basketball. Uh, they've come a long way in a couple of years. I, I mean, this rebuild has sort of been in the works for longer than that. You could say like four or five years even, but really they hit accelerate in the last couple of years. And I, I'm interested to see what they look like next year because obviously you know Durant isn't going to be there for most of the year. I think it's a really big opportunity for Karis LeVert um, to, you know, sort of show what he can do and expand his game a little bit. I mean, he, he looked fantastic at the beginning of the season. He suffers that gruesome ankle injury, makes his way back, and I thought looked incredible at the end of the season. In, in that playoff series against Philly, I think he was Brooklyn's best player, without a doubt. And he's a guy who I think really thrives with the ball in his hands. So once Kyrie and Durant are both healthy and playing, I think, you know, his, his on-ball role might be minimized to a certain extent. This this coming season is an opportunity for him, I think, to showcase what he can do and try to expand his game before uh, before the team gets whole, basically. And for Kyrie Irving, I mean, it's going to be another opportunity for him to try and show that, that he can lead a team. I think the supporting cast is not totally dissimilar to the one that he had in Boston. Um, it's a little bit more front court heavy than it is like guard and wing heavy, but... Um, it's a pretty solid, deep supporting cast, and he is going to be the guy, you know, the, the primary ball handler and playmaker. And I think he's coming into this season with a lot to prove after the way things ended for him in Boston. Yeah, and the Nets are already a solid young team, and I know that they lost the one guy that made an all-star team last year, but let's be real, there was stretches of the season where Karis Levert was their best player. There were stretches of the season where Spencer Dinwiddie was their best player. Jaron Allen is a very important piece of both what they did last year and what they're going to do going forward. 
So when you take all that into account, you still have all those pieces, and you have Joe Harris's sharp shooting, uh, and you still have Kenny Atkinson's pretty like sound two-way system running things, and Sean Marks running the organization, and you consider, you know, the maybe not additional star talent, but the type of supporting talent they could probably attract to New York when you got these two transcendent offensive talents like in tone. It, Things are shaping up pretty well for Brooklyn, and I get all the concerns that they're going to pay Kevin Durant, you know, in the neighborhood of $38 million to not play basketball next season. I get that Kyrie Irving, you know, there's a pattern starting to emerge, and maybe he's not the greatest leader. I understand all that, but at the end of the day, two of the biggest free agents committed to their franchise, and they beat out the more famous, but obviously... Um, more dysfunctional New York team in the Knicks to get them. They beat out, you know, at least one LA team. You got to figure was in it. Like the Clippers could have got one of them and still been able to go after Kawhi. So you got to figure they beat out at least one of the LA teams. Like the Nets just did their job and, and got it done. And again, when you consider where they were just three years ago as a back-to-back 60-plus loss team with no picks and really no young players to build on, and they're here now. It's It's unbelievable. And, I mean, it wasn't just that they were bad, right? I mean, they, they had nothing to build nothing. around. They did not have assets. They didn't have their own draft picks. I mean, just, like, to climb out of that hole, to even, you know, basically get back to respectability, which is what they managed last season, was an incredible feat um, to find Spencer Dinwiddie, um, to use whatever it was, the 20-something pick on Jared Allen. I mean... To flip Thaddeus Young for the 20th pick, I believe, that became Karis LeVert. Um, and, and of course, like to, to get D'Angelo Russell and to help develop in him into the player that he became. I mean, they ultimately you know decided to sever ties with him for the sake of bringing in Kyrie and Kevin Durant. He had a huge part to play in this, right? I mean, he really helped get them to the point where I think they, they had a strong pitch to make about the kind of team that they were and could be. And, you know, ultimately, we can move on to this in a bit. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead just yet, but, you know, they turned it into a sign-and-trade with the Warriors where uh, D'Angelo ends up going to Golden State. And the Nets actually pull in a future first-round pick in that deal from the Warriors as well. So, um, I mean, just an incredible job by their front office. And and like you're talking about, just like the, the team's brand, right? Like, it was absolutely in the tank a couple of years ago. Like, they... They have never really established that much of like a cultural footprint. Obviously, they're playing in the shadow of the Knicks. It was going to take time for them to build up a fan base and whip up some enthusiasm about that team, and it just never really seemed like that had quite caught. Um, you know, even in the era when look, they were never they've never been a great team since moving to Brooklyn, but. You know, they won 49 games one season when they were led by Darren Williams. They make that big trade, obviously, that blows up in their faces when they get Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett at the tail end of their primes. Um, mortgaging a half decade of their future in order to do it. And now, I mean, they're in better position now to win a championship, obviously, than the Boston Celtics are, which is just crazy to think about. And and they've done it, basically, without sacrificing any of their future. I mean, they have all their own picks. They have that Warriors pick now coming in. They still have young guys that I think are exciting that they can build around. You know, even if Durant isn't quite what he was when he comes back, I mean, I still think Levert is a really exciting player. He's got some some pick and roll ball handling chops. He's a solid playmaker. He's an excellent 
serpentine driver to the basket who just manages to find his way through space. Um, a solid finisher at the rim. I think his shooting can still be somewhat suspect, but he showed during that playoff series that uh, it can be a weapon for him off the dribble. And Jared Allen, like you said, I mean, one of the better young rim protectors in the game, I think. Uh, his interior defense still has a long way to go. He's still pretty slight, but he can obviously get up. Uh, he blocks a lot of shots. He's an audacious rim protector and like has no qualms about getting dunked on if it means that he has a chance to disrupt a shot at the rim. So I think, I think one way or another, you know, whether the Kyrie thing uh, or the Durant thing works out, as well as you might have expected, uh, I think their future is really, really bright. And and like you said, just what this signals, you know, to the rest of the league and to the fan base about how strong this team's brand and cultural cachet can really be. Yeah, they're they're a good franchise now. Good franchise, TM. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like certain franchises, they just arrive at this moment or you see them and they're kind of building up and you're like, oh, this team's got something going. Right. And then there's like this seminal moment where you're like, oh, no, they're just, they've arrived. Regardless well, of whether they end up winning or not, they've yeah. arrived as like a respectable, good franchises that stars, executives, like everyone just has to accept that that's what it is. They're now right. a mainstay as a good franchise in the NBA for at least the next few years. Yeah, I mean, think about how many franchises have actually attracted the kind of free agents that they just attracted. Yeah, very few. Especially at the same time. Uh, the list is really, really short. So, um, you know, yeah, I think it's great news for them one way or another. And I don't know. I mean, next season will just be sort of like a, a stopgap year for them. I don't think the expectations are going to be too, too high, which, again, I think is probably a good thing for those young players. Um, it's just sort of a chance to grow into, uh, you know, this new idea of them as a team that might be able to take over the Eastern Conference in a couple of years. Like, they have a little bit of time almost to ease into that. And who knows, maybe Durant is ready to come back at the tail end of the season. I tend to doubt it, especially given how that injury happened. I feel like he's going to be super, super cautious. And the Nets medical department, probably the same thing after seeing the way that things ended in Golden State. So I wouldn't expect him to play. Um, and, and I just think that's an interesting spot for the rest of their guys to be in. Um, and I, another thing is like, you know, there there are any number of directions they can choose to go, but if they decided that they wanted to swing for another superstar trade, I think they have the assets to get it done. I mean, with Levert, I think, being the prime candidate to, to be moved in, like, a superstar trade package. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just – I think they're really well set up and um, probably – like, would you call them the number one winner on day one of free agency? I think you'd have to. I think, um, I think the Jazz – were a very worthy runner-up. And, you know, I saw some people kind of saying that the Jazz were actually the low-key real winners and, and, you know, citing the risks associated with signing Kyrie and KD. I think that's kind of getting a little too cute and overthinking it. It's like, no. The, the team that signed Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant won the day, but uh, I guess we can move on to the next team. I, I do think the Jazz were, were a worthy runner-up on June 30th. You know, they had already traded for Mike Conley. Um, then... They go out and pay Bojan Bogdanovich. I believe it was four years and 70-something million dollars. 473, yeah. 473, which, you know, like a casual fan is probably thinking, like, he's like a 30-year-old non-all-star. That seems crazy, but it's really not. If you look at, like, the current marketplace, it might be a bit of an overpay. The guys, it's an overpay. It's, it's an overpay, but it's, you know, for Utah. A justifiable Exactly. One. Utah's not getting a star free agent. They literally needed a bigger kind of physically imposing guy who could create his own shot and score. 
and take some of the scoring load off Mitchell and even Conley now, and they got it. Like they, I don't think they could have used that money personally any better than they did by getting a guy like Bogdanovich. They now have a a guy that's probably a very credible like number three scorer on a good team. He just averaged 18 points per game on really good efficiency in Indiana, where they were a playoff team. He slots in with Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell. Joe Ingles and Rudy Gobert in what might be the best or second best starting lineup in the Western Conference right now. Like the Jazz, to me, had a really good day. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was already really high on them. Just oh, and as, Ed Davis too. Yeah, um, I was high on them as soon as they made that Conley trade. I think uh, he just like such a phenomenal fit um, next to Donovan Mitchell in that backcourt. I think. You know, if there's one thing that you could say, the Jazz, like they still don't really have any depth at the four, and maybe Bogdanovich is going to play a bunch of his minutes there. Maybe they bump Joe Ingles up to play some minutes there as well. Um, but their their front court is still a little bit thin, and I'd say so. Like the the issue the Jazz have run into in the playoffs the last couple of years is just they're a little bit light on shot creation, individual shot creation, especially like guys who can create for themselves teams basically switch against them force them into isolations and like they just don't really like have enough guys who can create their bigs have not been post-up threats and their offense has basically just been pretty easy to scheme for so i think the conley addition is huge in that regard i think that still might be an issue for them though just because conley isn't like he's not an elite isolation scorer he's not somebody who's going to just absolutely dust mismatches and, you know, like, I think he's going to help them in a, in a ton of different ways. And he's going he's gonna to, like, ease a lot of the ball handling burden off of Mitchell. But um, I, I'm not totally sold on their offense being, like, top 10 just yet. And again, so, like, the Bogdanovich signing, I do think it's an overpay. But when I say it's a justifiable one, it's like he fills such a clear area of need for them, right? He gives them spacing around what could be some really lethal Mike Conley, Rudy Gobert pick-and-rolls, or Donovan Mitchell, Rudy, Ga- Rudy Gobert pick-and-rolls. Bogdanovich can run a bit of pick-and-roll himself. He can handle the ball, and, like, Ingles gives you that as well. So you're looking at a starting lineup where you just got multiple ball handlers, multiple shooters. Um, they're versatile. Uh, they're still going to be rock-solid defensively, I think. And, again, you know, something as understated as just picking up Ed Davis. Like... In order to make that Bogdanovich signing happen, they had to let go of Derek Favors. And on the market, I don't think there was a better Derek Favors replacement than Ed Davis. He's not as good as Favors, but he does a lot of the same things. He's an excellent rebounder, both offensively and defensively. He really does a good job protecting the rim. He moves his feet well. Just a solid, smart player who, I mean, you know, again, Favors was basically playing the role of like token starting power forward but really primarily he was a backup five and now you have davis who can be primarily a backup five and he's getting paid a third of what favors would have gotten so i'm with you on that i think you know they've had a great offseason so far um i think they probably still have a four to add at some point in time um but they're in a really good spot and until we know what's happening with Kawhi. uh you know, they're up there among a small group of favorites, I think, in the Western Conference and maybe even number one. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, if, if Kawhi goes to the Lakers, it's it's almost game, set, match. We'd have to see what happens with, like, injuries and things like that. But you'd have arguably the greatest big three ever in while the rest of the league is as even as ever. If Kawhi goes 
to the Clippers or stays with the Raptors, you have a situation where like teams like Utah can realistically talk themselves into believing not that just they're, they're finals contenders, but they might be actual championship contenders. Like that's that's how close we are to league-wide parity right now. Um, a team that is nowhere near close to that echelon, regardless of what happens with Kawhi Leonard, is the damn New York Knicks. <laughs> Holy mother of God. How is this still an NBA franchise? How have they not taken the New York Knicks away from James Dolan for malpractice? Like, this is... It's so unbelievable, and yet it's so predictable at the same time. Like, I don't know. I'm not even a Knicks fan, and I can't even imagine. Like, I'm personally sick of the amount of times in my life as an NBA fan that the Knicks have geared up for free agency, hoarded cap space, considered themselves a favorite to land a transcendent superstar or multiple, and then struck out on all of them. Like, yeah, sure, they got Amari that one time. But, like, even that, that was they were, like, clear-cut second tier by getting Amari instead of getting, you know, LeBron or Bosch or Wade. This is the Knicks. This is what they do. And then this was the year it was supposed to all be different. Heck, they were considered the favorite, according to most plugged-in media people, for Kevin Durant all season. They were rumored as a potential landing spot for both Durant and Kawhi as recently as the weekend by Wojnarowski. Okay, like that's how close they were. And in the end, they traded, and I understand he was disgruntled and reportedly wanted out and threatened that he'd go to Europe, which blah, 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 they shouldn't have bought it. They traded a young potential superstar, budding superstar, that at the time was still on his rookie scale contract. They traded him to clear cap space for what turned into like 135 or $145 million worth of Julius Randle, um, Alfred Payton, Taj Gibson, Bobby Portis, whoever the hell else they signed today. I'm probably forgetting another. Like That is mind-numbingly atrocious. And now you think about it, and it's like, I don't even know, and people are already talking about, well, they're all short-term deals. They'll have flexibility again another year. It's like, what? No. What is this, Groundhog Day? Like, you have not learned yet that this team is not going to get it right when it comes to free agency. No one's going there. No one's playing for that ass clown James Dolan's team. This is a gong show of the highest order. And the one I feel bad for in all this is RJ Barrett. Yeah. Because it's not like there's young pieces he can grow with. I guess it depends, you know, how high you are in Frank Nittalakina and Kevin Knox and Dennis Mitch- Smith. Yeah, Dennis Smith, Mitchell Rod- Like, there are young pieces there, but the guys they're adding now. That everyone's saying, well, they'll keep flexibility because they're all short deals. Yeah, but it also means like none of these guys are going to grow with Baird and the young guys. So it's kind of pointless to me. You can chime in at any point. No, I mean, I agree with everything you said. And look, it wasn't, it's not like when they were the favorites to land Durant and Kyrie. It's not like the reason for that was because they had just done such a smart job, like putting the organization in position to land those two guys. It was because they wanted to play there, and then they realized, hey, there's an opportunity to still play in New York for a team that made a whole lot more sense. Like, that Knicks roster just ended up looking so totally barren. And honestly, maybe if they win the lottery, it's different. You know, maybe if Zion is there, that changes the entire picture. But as it was, and we don't have to go back into the Porzingis stuff or, you know, the the specifics of why they dealt him, like... Uh, there were reports basically that he was threatening just to take the qualifying offer and enter unrestricted free agency a year after this one and that they were basically over a barrel. But um, 
I, like whatever their reason for dealing him, I, I honestly, I still don't think that was like an out and out terrible move uh, because it was clear there was friction between him and the front office and that they were potentially going to have to move on at some point in time. And I thought they honestly, like they got decent value for him given the contracts that they unloaded. Now I understand like the, they unloaded those contracts because they signed him in, them in the first place, um, you know, for Tim Hardaway Jr. and Courtney Lee. But um, they also pulled in two draft picks from the Mavericks. And look, they put themselves in position to sign both of those guys. And it didn't work out. So the pivot to Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, Tosh Gibson, uh, Alfred Payton, um, who else? Wayne Ellington. I mean... You're talking about R.J. Barrett. Like, this roster, to me, just, like, doesn't make sense. I remember we were talking during our draft wrap-up podcast about how R.J. Barrett was a guy who was going to need the ball in his hands and be surrounded by shooting. But he's, like, putting him with Alfred Payton, who's a guy who needs the ball in his hands and can't shoot, with another guard in Frank Nittalikina, who can't shoot, with a bunch of power forwards who can't shoot, and, I, you know, it's good that they got, like, the team option on the last year of all of those deals. That's a solid piece of business. But I just – I see where this is going, and it's, like, to maintain flexibility for another summer down the road where I just see them ending up in a similar spot. Um, and maybe ultimately it's just, like, one guy is going to change that. I mean, maybe Giannis just decides that he has to be a Nick. And maybe – Barrett blossoms to the extent that it makes sense for a superstar to want to go there and join him. Um, but for now, yeah, it's like it's hard to sell hope when you've been peddling the same thing for so many years and it hasn't worked out. Yeah, and like I just don't think they even have it. I mean, they'll be bad again, so maybe they will have enough a year from now, but like I don't know. I don't know enough about the 2020 draft to know if there's any franchise changes in it. It just feels like once again the Knicks went from unfounded confidence that they were on the precipice of something great to being so far away again. Um, Unless you have any other Knicks-related stuff to add. Well, I'll just say, I think the biggest mistake they made was not using the opportunity when they knew that their cap space wasn't going to go toward a max free agent. Why did they not make themselves available as a dumping ground for bad money contracts? Like, the, the Grizzlies took on Andre Iguodala, which is not even a negative value asset, right? Like, they they can flip Iguodala again, probably, for something of value. They got a first-rounder just for taking on Iguodala's $12 million deal. The Clippers, who took on Mo Harkless's contract in the four-team Jimmy Butler trade that we can talk about, got a first-rounder for their troubles to take on Mo Harkless. And, and meanwhile, the Knicks are out there splurging on, like, Wayne Ellington... And Reggie Bullock, who, like, I like those guys as players, but how about instead of spending $16 million on Wayne Ellington, you just absorb Mo Harkless and get a first-rounder out of it? You know what I mean? Like, wh- I-, I just don't really understand why they wouldn't have taken the opportunity to do that. Well, I do understand. It's because they're dumb. <laughs> no, I'm, like, it's... And I don't mean that in just, like, a simplistic way, but it's, like, there is a reason bad and perennially bad NBA franchises stay bad. And this is why, because they don't have the foresight to do something that the two of us are sitting here thinking like, wait, why don't the Knicks do this? 
why don't they take on some maybe bad money or meh money to acquire some picks? And heck, you know who did that? The Brooklyn Nets when they were at their lowest. They took contracts like Demarty Carroll's from Toronto's. Kenneth Freed. To, yeah, Kenneth Freed to get picks that turn into players. And like the Demarry Carroll contract, one of those picks t- turned into Rodian Karooks. Who, okay, sure, he's not lighting the world on fire. But you know what? Crooks was a solid rookie last year on a team that made the playoffs. Like, right. those little things and those little moves that the Knicks never seem to, like, think about, those things do add up in the grand scheme of things if you do them enough and you make, like, enough of those smart moves. The Knicks don't do it. There's no reason to believe they ever will under James Dolan's ownership. And, again, that's why bad NBA teams stay bad. And that brings me to my next team, the Charlotte Hornets. Also, just a dumpster fire of a franchise and a very cheap one at that. Like, let's let's go through their pattern here. They didn't trade Kemba Walker at the deadline, okay? They didn't trade a pending free agent star who they knew for damn sure wanted a max contract come the summer. And they didn't do it because, you know, at the time they said because they wanted him to be part of the future and blah, 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 but... I think in hindsight, we can now say it's because they were chasing two home playoff games and whatever revenue would come in from that. And then a couple months later, reportedly, they not only don't offer him the five-year Supermax that he qualified for, they, according to Shams, offered him, quote-unquote, significantly lower than even the five-year 190 max. So it's like if you weren't prepared to even offer him the normal max and you knew that's what he wanted, and therefore you knew you weren't retaining him in free agency, why in God's name did you not trade him? Would two home games, like, would the revenue from two home playoff games have been that important? And then, after all that, they turn around and give Terry Rozier, like, $58 million. All guaranteed. All guaranteed. Again, it's just like, like the Knicks, at a certain point, And I know it probably sucks. Not probably. It sucks if you're a Hornets fan. But at a certain point, you just have to accept this team is not going to do things right. Their only hope is landing like a truly, truly transcendent. Not even in Kemba's stratosphere. Like I'm talking the truly transcendent type players. Landing one of those guys in the draft. Getting some lottery. Like that's literally their only hope. Because in terms of actually building a team the normal way, they're not smart enough to do it. And no one's going to play in Charlotte. Yeah. I mean... I, and maybe that's why. I mean, they felt like they needed to overpay to get Terry Rozier. Just because they they know nobody's coming to play in Charlotte. But, but, but they're not willing to give Cam Walker a max, though. Well, that's different. I mean, that was five years, $221 million if they wanted to give him the Supermax. And what would we be saying if they, if they had done five one ninety. That's what I was saying, too. Shams reported that they offered they wouldn't even him, give him the, significantly lower than five one ninety. Interesting. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm not going to defend that. <laughs> But, look, I think probably what we would have been saying if they had signed Kemba to that deal was, like, they, they hamstrung themselves financially. They're going to be stuck in the middle forever and ever in perpetuity. At least this way, like, they're going to tank in earnest, right? Like, they're going to plummet to the bottom of the standings and actually have a chance, hopefully, to... I mean, they did this once <laughs> trying to get Anthony Davis. They went 7-52 and 52 and wound up with Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, so... Obviously, you never know how this is going to go, but um, look, I don't know. I mean, Rogier, I know we had a really rough year last year, but is there really that much downside to this deal for the Hornets? Like, it's a bad deal, without a doubt. 
and there's a very good chance that he will underperform that deal significantly. But if you're the Hornets, you're looking at a really long rebuild anyway because you're not really starting with much else. You're waiting for those other contracts to come off your books in you know Kid Gilchrist and Zeller and Marvin Williams. And you've got a, an interesting young player, I think, in um, Miles Bridges. Um, so I, I, just, I just don't think it really affects them that much. Like you said yourself, nobody is signing in Charlotte. <laughs> so the cap space doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, why not give this guy a chance? Who, who showed, like when Irving went down a couple seasons ago, Terry Rozier was great. He had a tremendous playoff run and, you know, at least gave some hint that as a lead ball handler, there's some untapped potential there. I, I don't like the money. I don't like that it's all guaranteed, but I, I just feel like the Hornets almost have nothing to lose here. No, and I agree with that. Like, I don't think, you know, in a vacuum, like on its own, the Terry Rozier deal is, you know, worthy of the disdain I'm showing for them right now. I think it's just when you, when that's the capper on the Kemba Walker saga, I think that's what makes it to me seem such an, like such an abomination because it came after the way they treated Kemba Walker. Yeah, that's fair. I'll just say that there's like a big difference between $190 million and and $58 million. And look, it's, I'm not defending Michael Jordan. And um, I, I think, you know, every NBA owner has extremely deep pockets and they should all be willing to pay the luxury tax in my opinion. But um, you know, given the way that most of these franchises tend to operate, um, and you know, given that the Hornets were looking at not really being particularly competitive anyway, I think it's it's not like a terrible outcome for them. I mean, they're gonna suck for a while, but um, I, w- I mean, we'll see. I do have high hopes for Bridges, and and maybe Rogier can rediscover some of the pop that he had a couple years ago in Boston. Um, the you just said Boston. That's where we're going next. Kemba Walker ends up with the Celtics. Yeah. I look, I get that it's better than nothing. Uh huh. It could have been a lot worse. They could have lost Kyrie and Horford and I guess technically Rozier and, and not replaced them with anything. They replaced them with Kemba Walker and S. Cantor. I think they're losers. And the thing that keeps popping into my head is that this team two years ago traded Isaiah Thomas um, in a deal that got them Kyrie Irving, which even though, you know, people were talking about how heartless and cold it was in the time, I completely understood it because they were setting themselves up as a team that they didn't want to just be good. They wanted to be great. They wanted to build a dynasty. They wanted to be build a sustainable contender. And they were, that was the move that a bold franchise makes. And so they moved off of Isaiah Thomas. And now two years later, after Kyrie Irving ended up really being the crown jewel of the whole Celtics process of the last few years, they lose Kyrie Irving and Al Horford, and the star replacement is Kemba Walker, who kind of very similar to the guy they moved off of two years ago to make that bold step from good to great, and that was Isaiah Thomas. Now, is Kemba Walker the same defensive liability? No, and you know Isaiah had the hip issues too, but I'm just saying in terms of like player-to-player, both pick and roll heavy um, offensive point guards that can score in bunches. Kemba Walker is obviously better defensively. I think Isaiah Thomas's last season in Boston was actually more prolific offensively than what Kemba Walker just did this season. 
Dude, Isaiah Thomas' last <laughs> season in Boston was like one of the most prolific scoring seasons exactly. ever for a guard. Exactly. But, ever. But, but that's what I'm saying. And they moved off of that because of, you know, a f- like the liabilities Isaiah had just kind of prevented him from getting to the stratosphere Kyrie was on. But to me, it's like they've kind of gone in a in a circle and they're back to square one with where they were when they were moving off of Isaiah. And that's a good, eh, solid team. Not a true contender. The shine's off them a little bit. It's definitely off Danny Ainge. Yeah, okay. So what would you have had them do? I mean... Do you, like I think this is a pretty decent rebound. Actually, no, again, from, from I'm, and I'm not saying Ky- signing Kemba's bad. Like that's what I'm saying. I get it. It is better than nothing. It's just considering where they were, better than nothing seems like such a gut punch. Mm-hmm. And I it just taking the whole big picture over the last couple of years, it feels like they went like in a million different di- directions just to get back to square one. Yeah, um, I'm not like given the whole lead up to this, and given the extremely favorable position it seemed like they were in and how it looked like Kyrie was going to resign and they might make a push for Anthony Davis and Jason Tatum was going to be a superstar and they were going to rule the East for 10 years. Compared to that, they're not in a great spot right now. But to me, so much still just comes down to like whether those young guys pop the way that we expected them to. So that starts with Tatum, who I, I think still has a lot of potential and still is you know, in my mind, going to be an all-star caliber player at some point in time. Maybe it doesn't happen next year. Maybe it doesn't happen for two or three years. But I just think, like, I really like his size, his fluidity. Like, I think he can make some stuff happen off the dribble. I think, obviously, his shot selection has a bit of a ways to go, but he can clearly shoot it. Um, he's a solid finisher at the rim, and he, he has the tools to be a really good defender. I, I just, I think the outline of a, of a really, really good player is still there. Um, I mean, their front court is thin. Like, <laughs> losing Horford, they trade Baines, obviously. Um, they're probably going to lose Marcus Morris. So, I, I, like, I, who are they looking at starting at power forward? Like, uh, Gordon Hayward? Basically? The Celtics? Yeah. Would it be Tatum? Would Tatum start at, like, a small ball four? Basically, Tatum or, or, Hay- or, Hayward. or Hayward. Yeah. Beside Cantor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Beside for Cantor. That's, that, like, that's their starting front court. Yeah. I think it's safe to say they're going to take a step back defensively. Yeah, I'd say so. Um... I mean, Horford and Baines were the pillars of their defense, so that's going to be tough. But um, I think they might be better offensively than they were last year. I, actually, uh, I, I feel pretty good about saying that they will be. I really like Kemba as a player. Um, he's super exciting to watch. I mean, I know we're talking just about results right now, but if you're a Celtics fan, like you get to watch Kemba Walker play for the next four years. Again, I just think that's a pretty nice consolation prize after losing your two best players. And, I mean, like, do I think that they're going to contend for a championship? I, like, not next year, but let's see how this thing goes. I mean, I think they're going to have some flexibility there. And, again, like like I was saying with the Nets, if they want to make another trade, I feel like they're probably still going to have the assets to get it done. That Memphis pick is still really, really valuable. Uh, obviously, Tatum and Brown are still going to have, I think, a lot of appeal around the league just given the premium that's being placed on wings and the number of different things those guys can do. And I think you've got a pretty good foundation in place now. Um, And, uh, you know, I think you could do a lot worse having, you know, a franchise guy like Kemba, who not only is a very, very good player and a guy who, again, like his size limits what he can do defensively, but he's going to work hard at that end of the floor and is by all accounts a fantastic leader. So 
I don't something think... their last star <laughs> point guard was not. Right. Um, so I, I don't think it's a terrible place to start, but they lost a ton of talent, you know, and and I do think that the sort of narrative around Kyrie, especially at the end of the season, just muddied how great he actually was last year. I mean, he had a really, really good season yeah. on the court, right? And and even in that series against Indiana, I know it's kind of forgotten because the Celtics yeah. flamed out in the second round, but like Kyrie was pretty damn good in that series against Indiana. And the it's, Celtics would have had a very tough time. You know, it ended in a sweep, but it was a very competitive sweep. And the Celtics won almost all four of those games because at some point in the second half, Kyrie was just like, all right, I'm clearly the best player on the floor. Let me do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, he was the one guy who was able to take over games with, with his off-the-dribble playmaking. Uh, nobody on Indiana could do it, and nobody else on Boston could really do it. Those games were slogs, frankly, and, and Kyrie was the one guy who was basically able to take over at the offensive end of the floor. And he had four really bad games against Milwaukee, and, and the whole world turned on him. And, you know, that had a lot to do with the way that he carried himself throughout the season. But uh, I, I just I think we shouldn't forget just how good he actually was on the court like it was a great great season and in in pure talent terms I think it's a downgrade going to Kemba but um I, I think the Celtics are still in a decent spot you know they you we mentioned them losing Horford in the process of all this too Horford goes to the rival Sixers who had one of the more uneven first 24 hours of free like I can't call them winners or losers I don't really know what to make of this team they're different yeah. They look a lot different. What are your thoughts on them? Because they are going to, it looks like they're going to field a very unconventional lineup next season. Yeah, so I think that it's going to be really interesting. Obviously, a very unconventional roster um, and an unconventional projected starting five. To me, their biggest concern is they just don't have a traditional point guard. And people want to call Ben Simmons their point guard. <sighs> I just don't see him that way. Like, yeah, he can handle the ball. Yeah, he's a great passer. He can bring it up the floor, but he doesn't defend point guards and he can't run pick and roll as a ball handler the way that you need your point guards to do in this day and age. Like, I think they should actually be pivoting toward trying to use him more like a forward, using him as a screener in pick and roll. I mean, he's already basically a forward defensively, right? Like, he'll guard threes, fours, and fives, not ones and twos. And they, they put him on like Lowry for stretches of the, I, yeah, but I just don't think that's where his strength right. actually lies. Yeah. As a defensive player. He can do that. And like his flexibility defensively is, you know, a big, a, like a core strength. Of but his, you don't want but, him there primarily. Yeah. I just don't think that that's actually where he's best as a defender. Like he's best defending big wings um, and sliding across basically all the front court positions. And I think, you know, Philly's perimeter defense was pretty weak last year. Josh Richardson will help. I actually think, you know, Jimmy Butler is a great perimeter defender. I think Richardson might be even better. Wow. And uh, this guy, Thibel, who they got in the draft, who, you know, could potentially bolster them at that end as well. Losing Redick will kind of be addition by subtraction. So, I mean, I think defensively, like, they have a chance to be a top five elite team. Yeah. Like, uh, obviously, a ton of size and just Horford and Embiid in the front court is, they're going to be really, really tough to score on. So I guess uh, I'm a little just like more concerned uh, about them at the offensive end. I, I don't know. I, I'm just like, I, I can't even really conceptualize how it's going to look or how it's going to work 
But for now, I guess my chief concern would just be that I, I don't, I don't know that they have enough like primary ball handling. Like they don't have some like. Look, their offense has never really been pick and roll heavy, so maybe that won't be a concern. To say but, the least, yeah. But but think about how much of that was was because they had JJ Redick, who was just running around taking dribble handoffs and and firing off of screens. Like Tobias Harris can replicate some of that, but not all of it. Um, so I feel like their offense could still get really gummed up at points. Uh, but yeah, defensively, I think they're going to be a monster. I think Tobias Harris will be better. Um, Productivity-wise than he was production-wise than he was in, in a half season in Philly last season. I just... It, Tobias as, like, the fourth option was just a weird fit because he does need the ball in his hands at least a little bit. I think his numbers will come back up with Jimmy out of the picture, and I think now that he's locked in there for, geez, the next five years, I think they'll, Brett Brown will figure out how to maximize him a little bit better. And I think some night, a lot of nights, I think Tobias might end up carrying them offensively because he... Quite frankly, he has to. Like, out of all their big-time scorers, he's the only one that can shoot. Like, Josh Richardson can shoot, but he's not He's, he's not going to be, like, a primary scorer for this team, right? Like, for the most part, it's going to be Embiid, Harris, and even Simmons. But Harris is the shooter among them. Like, I, they just need more from him. But my concern with that is the reason Jimmy Butler took on so much of the scoring load in, especially in that second round against Toronto, is because it didn't look like Tobias Harris was really able to do much against that Raptors defense in the second round. And if anything, like for me, it was kind of eye-opening because even though I knew Jimmy Butler was the better player, I went into the playoffs thinking, you know, I think Tobias, if they can only re-sign one of them, even though Butler's better, I think Harris fits what they need more going forward. And then I watched that series and I was like, man, no, no, no. Like they need to keep Jimmy between them because Jimmy is a 16 game player if I've seen one before. Well, not only that, it's like, this is what I was talking about with this idea of Ben Simmons as a point guard. Like, did he play point guard in that series against the Raptors? Like they moved him off the ball and, and Butler was basically running the offense. So I don't know, like maybe Harris is that guy. Maybe Richardson's that guy. Like I do think Richardson has, you know, he can handle the ball. A little bit. Um, he can shoot off the dribble a little bit. Uh, maybe it's just like they do it by committee. They can run some some wacky like four or five pick and rolls with Horford, Horford and Embiid. Is, so is and, is Al Horford just like a stretch four now on offense? So I think he'll be like he'll start at the four, but he'll play a lot of backup five. You know, similar to how Derek Favors like did it in Utah. Um, Obviously, I think Horford's a much better player, uh, but and, and he'll he'll probably play more minutes alongside Embiid than Favors ever did with Gobert. Actually, I think he definitely will. But I, I think you know for for a large chunk of his minutes, he's just going to be the biggest guy on the floor. Uh, you know, functionally the center, so they can use him in both of those roles. And I think you know he has enough stretch and enough mobility on defense that that's going to be viable to play him at the four for big minutes. I just. I don't know how long that's going to be the case. You know, how long can he hold up as a four defensively? Presumably for one or maybe two more years. I don't know about like over the over the life of that contract, but maybe by the end of the contract, he's just like a straight backup five, and and the Sixers are fine with that. Yeah, and the reason I'm I'm calling them an uneven performer on the day two is because of that parody around the league that I was talking about. And it's like every, right now, every quasi contender has major question marks. Again, unless Kawhi joins the Lakers. So I look at the Sixers and I'm like, okay, I don't really know how a Simmons, Richardson, Harris, Horford, and Bede lineup 
pans out offensively. They don't have forget much that they don't really have any depth like it's Mike Scott and as you mentioned to me earlier today maybe bring back TJ McConnell like Myers Leonard like, they yeah they trade for Myers four, Leonard in but that like, four team trade I I think in in terms of traditional contenders they don't have enough depth and offensively it doesn't seem to like fit together but then you look around the east and it's like yeah, Milwaukee's probably still the best team on paper if Kawhi doesn't compact to Toronto, but I think they've got some questions, and like they just lost Brogdon. It was a big piece, and we just talked about Boston, and you know, on the whole, they lost talent. Indiana also had an uneven first couple days of free agency. They they added Brogdon, which was great. They also lost Bogdanovich and Thad Young, who were big. Like, there's not a team in the East to me that I can point on and be like that team's definitely better than Philly. I don't think one of those exists now. Milwaukee might be. But I'm not ready to say they definitely are. You look out west, and again, the Lakers, we know how top-heavy they are. But, like, I don't know. In a seven-game series, would I absolutely pick the Lakers right now over the Sixers? Like, uh, probably not. And that's why I'm so confused by the Sixers. Because I think there are very serious flaws with this team. And I think as long as Kawhi doesn't go to the Lakers, they could also very well win the championship next season with this team. Like, it's, it's kind of crazy. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Maybe we can use this as an opportunity to segue into the Warriors and what they did um, because, you know, their sort of sudden fragility is the reason that we're in this spot. What did you think of the move that they made uh, to turn that Durant thing into a sign-and-trade with Brooklyn and get D'Angelo Russell on a max? I kind of thought it was a disaster. <laughs> okay. Like, I... Look, nothing against D'Angelo Russell. He had a very fine year for a fun young playoff team. He made an all-star appearance as an injury replacement. But come on. Did did I assume someone was going to max out D'Angelo Russell? Yes, I did. Did I think it would be a contending team that should know better in terms of knowing the difference between a real max-level talent and a fraud? (laughs) No, and again, I don't mean... Okay, apologies to D'Angelo Russell. I don't mean he's a fraud in general. I don't mean he's a fraud as a player in general, as a human, anything like that. What I'm trying to say is, and I think you understand this, lots of guys get max contracts and they're not max level talents. And that's how I see D'Angelo Russell. Good for him for getting his money. Again, I figured someone would give it to him. I just didn't think that the type of team who knows that difference would be the one to give it to him. And I certainly didn't think a team as smart as the Warriors, or at least a team that was as smart as the Warriors, would give up Andre Iguodala and two lightly protected first-round picks in order to facilitate the ability to give D'Angelo Russell $117 million. That whole convoluted sequence of events had me very confused because it was very un-Warriors-like, and I don't even necessarily see the fit for him on this team. I definitely don't see the fit for him at that money. It just didn't make any sense. All right, so let's break it down, okay? Um, They execute the sign-and-trade which means they hard cap themselves uh, at, I think it's what, $6 million above the luxury taxes where the apron is, right? Uh, it's about $139 million. So 
they leave themselves very little wiggle room under that apron, you know, when accounting for Clay Thompson's new max deal, five years, $190 million. In order to clear space underneath the apron to make that possible, they have to get rid of Andre Iguodala. They trade him into the Grizzlies' cap space. And in order to make that happen, they have to send out a very lightly protected 2024 first-round pick. It's top four protected in 2024. And look, I know it's the Warriors we're talking about here, but do you know what kind of shape the Warriors are going to be in in 2024? I mean, like, no. Like, that could easily be a top 10 pick, right? Um, And one of the years, isn't it only, like, top one protected? So it goes from being top four protected in 2024, which, I mean, look, I, I don't think that they're going to end up keeping it if they do it's top one protected in 2025 and if they keep it again in 2025 it's unprotected in 2026 so realistically it probably conveys in 2024 but a top four protection is not much and again it's far enough out that like you just don't know what they're going to look like at that point in time i just like that was probably the part of the deal that made the least sense to me and we can get to the Russell stuff in a minute because there's a lot of interesting things to talk about in, in that regard. But, like, do you not think that they could have found a taker for Iguodala, like a team that would have been willing to take him without requiring a first-rounder? Like, I don't see Iguodala on what he has one year left on his deal at $12 million. Like, is, does that carry so much negative value that you have to give a valuable first-rounder up to get rid of him? I don't think so. And again, like... <laughs> And I hate to bring it back to Russell, but first of all, I agree with you. I don't. I feel like they could have found uh, a more palatable trade here, a palatable trade here. But if they couldn't, again, is it that much of an emergency to give Daniel Russell 117 million dollars that you're okay giving up all this to move off Iguodala's contract? Like that again, it just seems so unwarriors like. I think, yeah, unwarriors-like is a good way of putting it. And I'm, I'm saying that without even really making a declaration on whether I think this is a smart deal or not. Um, because I think there's an element to it that is smart, which is just like purely the asset accumulation game. The ability to acquire, you know, you can quibble over whether Russell is a deserving max player. But a star at the age of 23 who you can expect is going to have a lot of value on the market over the life of his contract. They had no other means really of getting a player like that, right? Um, Because they were going to be into the tax uh, pretty much as it was. And that was before accounting for Draymond Green's upcoming free agency. So I think it was an opportunity for them to get an asset and they, they pounced on it. And I think that's smart. Um, whether Russell was the right guy to do it or whether they had to give up what they gave is is another matter. And uh, they also flip a first-rounder to the Nets in that sign-and-trade, which I don't know why they needed to do that. But you take this deal as a whole, they're now out Iguodala, and they're out two first-round picks, and now they have Russell on a max deal. And his fit with Steph Curry is tenuous, right? Like, Russell is a ball-dominant guard. He had a 32% usage last season with 53% true shooting. I don't know if that's the guy that you want cannibalizing Steph Curry's on-ball possessions. I still think they're 
going to be pretty good offensively, like really good offensively, honestly. And Curry is an excellent off-ball player, and that's important. They can still make this work. Defensively, I mean, they were already slipping defensively. They were middle of the pack last year, and they were bottom five in the playoffs in defensive efficiency. You lose Iguodala, who's one of your best defenders, um, and you lose Clay Thompson, basically, for most, if not all, of the season. And you're looking at a starting backcourt with two guys. I mean, Steph Curry is not really a defensive liability at the one. Like, he's basically an average defender for his position, I think. But having either him or Russell defending two guards, I think, is pretty disastrous. And especially without Iguodala or Thompson there, I mean, uh, they're going to be bottom 10 in defensive efficiency, I think. And, like, is their offense going to be good enough to overcome that and for them to make the playoffs? I mean, I think that's a legitimate question. Are they going to make the playoffs in what is looking like a very, very crowded Western Conference? Yeah, I mean, I'd bet on them to do it right now because I do think there is enough offensive talent there, and we know Steph's an offense unto himself. Um, Again, it just feels like – it feels like the kind of panicked – well, we got to do something move that bad or mediocre teams chasing something, you know, something in that mid-tier do, not the Warriors who have seen better and known better. Right. And should, frankly, trust themselves to build better. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't have to resort to this. Yeah, I mean, so I think basically the big negative here is that they hard cap themselves. But uh, I can say, and this was news that broke during our recording of the podcast, but they salvaged it to a certain extent by bringing back Kevon Looney for three years, 15 million. Yeah, that seems like a really low, like, that value is, tr- deal. Huh? That is a heist, okay? And and I wrote about this trade in a piece that hasn't actually been published yet. But one of the reasons I really didn't like it for the Warriors is because I didn't think they had any shot at retaining Looney at a figure that was going to help them stay underneath the apron. I figured they were just filling out the rest of the roster with minimum salary guys, basically. To bring him back, I think that actually changes the equation quite a bit um, because he is easily their best defensive center. I think he was really important for them last year. And without him, their big man rotation would have been in dire straits because you know Boogie's not coming back. Um, Jordan Bell has signed with the Timberwolves. Uh, to bring him back at that number is huge. I still think the fit is not great. And I do wonder, basically everyone is out there suggesting that this is a short-term play for them when Clay is ready to come back and when, you know, the moratorium, the six-month moratorium on their ability to trade him expires, they're going to look to flip him. And we know that the Timberwolves were interested in him before the Warriors swooped in, so maybe there's a deal to be made there. Carl Anthony Towns' Instagram seemed to suggest (laughs) that he believed Russell was on his way there. They absolutely believed it. Um... And so, you know, maybe there's still going to be a deal to be made there. Robert Covington's name is one that's been bandied about. I think he'd be a fantastic fit with the Warriors. You know, the Magic are a team that could use a point guard. Maybe maybe they get Aaron Gordon, somebody like that. I mean, I do think that they like he's going to have value on the market. Ultimately, I guess what, what you ask is, uh, is it going to be worth it at the end of the day? Having lost Iguodala, who admittedly was you know, on his last legs. He's going to play a couple more years, and he's 35 years old. Ultimately, I think they were going to have to retool around that three-man core of Steph, Clay, and Draymond, and I don't know if this, you know, this is a terrible way to do it. Um, but it just... 
I don't know. It just feels like they gave up a lot to get this done. And you're talking about it feeling like sort of a panicky move. I, I think it was. And it's like Steve Kerr talked during the season about how it felt like the Warriors were finally part of the real NBA again after living in a fantasy world for a half decade. And this is what that looks like. This is what teams in the real NBA do when they're facing a big transition and they're trying to cling to relevance or keep their competitive window propped open a little while longer. Sometimes they do desperate things and this could still work out for the Warriors. And like I said, as a pure asset acquisition play, I don't hate it, but there is an element of desperation to this that I feel like could come back to bite them. Yeah, I mean, they're still, you know, three-time champs in the last five years and five straight finals, but, you know, you remember Joe Lacob telling people they were light years ahead of the rest of the league, and I know it's it's an off-sighted joke now, but if we needed an indication that they are no longer light years ahead, I believe Sunday, June 30th, 2019 was that day because they lost Kevin Durant and they made this panic move for D'Angelo Russell. And I'm not saying it's the end of the Warriors. Like, you know, they can never return, but they are not, they are no longer who they were. Father time comes for everybody, players, teams, and it came for the Warriors. Yeah. But would it have been that much different if they had just, you know, run it back without making this move? They, they like, hold on to those two picks. They hold on to Like you mean run it back, but minus KD. Well, yeah, exactly. And without Clay Thompson, presumably for the majority of the coming season. I mean, are they in a much better spot in that situation? No, probably not. But I I just think they're a little more flexible and mm-hmm. they're just perception wise. It doesn't seem like they've taken as it wouldn't have seemed like they took as big a step back. Okay, so perception-wise, I mean, we'll see, yeah. right? Like, that perception is going to change, right. presumably, very quickly, depending on how it looks. And I think one thing that might worry me is because I think the fit is so poor, if it flops, if they get out to a bad start, if they're getting shredded on defense, what does that do to Russell's trade value, you know? Yeah, because I think... I think ultimately this deal is going to be judged by what they can get for them if they look to flip them. You know, assuming that it doesn't work on court. Maybe I'm proven wrong. I would love to be proven wrong. You know, I'd love for this to work and for Clay to come back and just slide right in there at the three and they're running out funky lineups with, with those three guys and Draymond at the four and Looney at the five and they're, you know, looking like just as dynastic as they ever were. Like, I would love for that to be the case. My expectation is that it's not going to be a great fit on the court and that they are going to look to flip Russell. So, you know, to me, the, this trade will be judged on what they can get for him down the road. And, like, is his value going to be impacted by the fact that he's not really being put in a position to succeed? Exactly. And this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, being a fraudulent max player when you're not truly a max-level talent. Look, D'Angelo Russell wasn't, like, a no-brainer young max talent guy. He, you know, we know the struggles he had in L.A. The Lakers gave up on him. They were stupid to do that. The Nets took a good chance on him, and it paid off. But, like, a year ago, for example, D'Angelo Russell, like, we... I personally didn't believe he was even the caliber of player he showed in Brooklyn this year. He was a pretty inefficient, ball-dominant player that took some bad shots. Now, they went in a lot more this year, and he did did certain things better. He did. He became a better offensive player, even process-wise. But that was one year, man, you know? And a year when like a lot of things just kind of came together in Brooklyn. I'm not ready to accept that he is a no-brainer, movable, max player guy. Because I don't believe that. Mm. If I think he's 
two bad months away from all of a sudden being like, oh, we can't move this deal. Like, it happens pretty quick. He is 23. I mean, he I is. think that, that Andrew really, Wiggins yeah. is also whatever the hell he is, 22, 23. Right. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But has Wiggins ever showed what Russell showed last season? Probably not. Where he basically was like a you know lead ball handler for a team that went to the playoffs. I mean, probably not, but I'd also... Definitely not. Definitely not, but I'd also argue that... And I, I'm not even... I'm the furthest thing from a Wiggins believer, but... I'm like, I don't know if, if Andrew Wiggins at any point in the last four or five years had been like the go-to scorer on a team like the Nets in last year's East. Like, eh, could a team like that have gone like six, seven or eight seed in the East with Wiggins averaging like a slightly above average efficiency, 20, 21 points a game? Like, I don't think that's that far out of the realm of possibility. And that's what I'm saying. Russell was good, but it's not like he had this holy crap, like anyone who gives that guy the max is making the right move no i think he had the type of year where it's like well he's getting the max but i don't know if he's worth it right um and again i the warriors might not think that either right you know they might just be doing whatever they could to get the asset i'll say this i mean we were talking about this uh, you know in another one of our offseason podcasts we were talking about you know basically what the warriors offense was going to look like without clay thompson and kevin durant and i was like wondering out loud whether other teams were just going to box and won them because it had so much much success in the finals because Steph was just surrounded by so many non-shooters and, and so many non-scorers. I think they needed the offensive punch that Russell's going to give them. He shot 37% from three last year on a high volume of attempts. His true shooting is dragged down by the fact that he just has a minuscule free throw rate. Uh, he doesn't get to the line. He doesn't really drive to the basket all that much, but that has basically been the Warriors MO for the last couple of years also and their offense has managed just fine. So I think this might nudge them toward more pick and roll based offense even though Steve Kerr has generally been opposed to that um just because Russell is such a proficient pick and roll ball handler um and you have spec- uh, you have Steph to basically space out around it or vice versa. I mean, you know, between Curry and Russell running pick and roll with like Draymond as a screener and the other guy to space, I, I do think that their offense is going to be pretty efficient. Um, and again, just like being able to get Looney back, have him as like a solid screener and a dive man and a guy who's going to gobble up offensive rebounds, like that's a big piece. So I think it's an interesting trade. Uh, and I don't really know where I stand on. I think there's some positive and some negative. Um, but yeah, I mean, where I ultimately come down is this is the kind of move that the Warriors obviously wouldn't have had to make in past years. And, and they're part of the real NBA now. And uh, these are the kind of deals that those teams have to make. You know what else is part of the real NBA? And this is for me, the last thing I want to talk about is Pat Riley, who only a couple of weeks ago I said might be just done. Part of the real NBA is Pat Riley every once in a while when it doesn't even seem fathomable that his team has max cap space, somehow landing a maximum free agent. And it happened again. Jimmy Butler, the Heat were not supposed to be players in this free agency class at all. They were in salary cap hell, a lot of bad contracts to mediocre players. Jimmy Butler was apparently so smitten with Miami and Pat Riley's organization and was apparently so impressed by the way they treated Dwayne Wade on his way out that Jimmy Butler decided, you know what? Even though that team has no path to get me, that's where I'm going. That's where I want to be. And credit to the Heat and the other three teams that got involved in that deal to make it happen. The Heat made it happen. And now, I'm, you know, I don't think the Heat are going to be that good. But, hey, 
they got themselves a max free agent. Jimmy Butler reportedly turned down the full five-year max from the Sixers in order to take, what, $45, $50 million less for the four-year max with Miami? Like, whatever. All the power to him. He's a young guy that's going to get to live on South Beach the next four years making max money. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if there's an executive in the league that can appreciate Jimmy Butler's attitude, I think it's Pat Riley. Um, Spolstra has experience dealing with big personalities. I, I just think if there's a a franchise and a power structure somewhere in the league that is actually tailor-made for Jimmy Butler, and if there's a franchise that I can see almost being okay overpaying Jimmy Butler when he's like 34 and 35, he landed in the perfect spot. Miami is it. Pat Riley's it. Yeah, I just don't really get it. Like, I, how good are the, are the Heat going to be? Like, why did Butler... I mean, maybe it's just a lifestyle decision but, but but butler is this dude who has always sort of marketed himself as this guy who's all about winning and i i just thought he was in a much better position to do that in philadelphia than he was going to be in miami and for the heat i don't know i mean like is having butler on this contract at his age that much better than having richardson on his contract at his age I think it's a little bit better. Is it that much better? Like, I just... How good are they going to be able to be over the course of that four-year deal? Like, are they ever going to sniff the conference finals, even? Well, here's the thing, though. And I think if any franchise and any executive understands this, it's Pat Riley and the Heat. I don't think Pat Riley and the Heat make this move thinking they're going to be much better this year. They probably don't think Butler's contract is much better than Josh Richardson's. But they understand as well, if not better than anybody, that it's a stars league, right? And it starts with one, but it doesn't end with one. And so I think them making this move is them, again, proving that they understand that better than most teams. Let's just get that first one in here. Mm-hmm. And we just proved that cap space almost doesn't matter. We'll figure it out. We'll find a way to get them in. So let's just get that first one in here. And who are we to say that a year from now, I know it's not a starry free agent class, but maybe they do get an impact guy. Who are we to say that two years from now, Jimmy Butler's not helping the Heat land another transcendent type player, and all of a sudden, the Heat are back. So I agree with you that on the surface right now, it it doesn't move the needle much, if at all. They're probably still like a 45-ish win ceiling team. Like That's not going to do much in the playoffs, but do I think foundationally they are closer to building something bigger again? Yeah, I think they are, because Mm -hmm. Jimmy Butler's a star, and no one else on that team was. Yeah, those are good points. Um, worth noting, they're also hard-capped, and they, they have, like, zero wiggle yeah. room under the apron, uh, at least one, once they fill out the back end of their roster with minimum guys. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm interested to see a lot of that will sort of fall on Bam Adebayo and Justice Winslow. How good can those guys get? Um, because apart from them, uh, you know, there aren't really any young building blocks on that Miami roster. Uh, Dragic is going into the last year of his deal. They tried to get rid of him in this Butler sign and trade, but uh, the Mavericks, who you know w- were thought to be the the third team uh, that was going to absorb that deal, backed out, and so Dragic is still on the Heat, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I just it's hard for me to see the upside right now. Um, but maybe it is like you're saying, just you know some of those contracts will cycle out. Waiters' contract will come off the books. James Johnson's contract will come off the books. Dragic's contract will come off the books. 
and suddenly it's Miami, you know, this great free agent destination, and Jimmy Butler's there, and uh, I think that's a good point. Uh, I, I guess maybe the question is just how long is he going to remain an elite player? And I don't know the answer to that right now, but uh, the clock is ticking already. You know, they put themselves in kind of an urgent situation, I think, and we'll see if, if they can get a second guy in there. But for now, it's just... I guess just for Butler, it just seems like a weird move to me, especially given that, you know, the other team that wanted to sign and trade for him was Houston. And again, if he's a guy who's all about winning, like that would have been a great situation for him to go and try and win. Um, and that's his hometown too. Yeah. So not that I'm judging him, you know, anybody can, can make uh, whatever decision they want, you know, for, for their future, for their family. He wanted to live in Miami. He wanted to play in Miami. That's totally fine. Uh, it's just, I don't know. I, I was... I was looking forward to seeing, you know, what that Philly team could do with him in the fold in the coming years. And I, I do still think that Philly is super interesting, but if they'd had Butler on a max deal instead of Tobias Harris, I think uh, I would have been a lot more interested. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Was um, that Harris deal? I mean, we haven't talked about that. Five years, 80 million for him. Like, oof. Um, especially given what happened to him in the playoffs. It's just, I don't, and again, I've talked about this so many times. It's like the sunk cost fallacy, right? They they gave up a lot to get him, so I feel like they felt the impetus to retain him, whatever the cost. It was 5190, right? 5180. 5-1-80. And I just don't know who they were bidding against. You know, like... Sunk cost, that's all it was. I think you, you hit it right on the head, man. Yeah. It was a sunk cost um, theory. And, man, if they had lost him and Butler, whoa, boy, like... Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Um, and I'm not saying it, may, it doesn't make it right. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, look, once, once Butler was out the door, I think they needed to keep him. I, don't, I still don't know if they needed to keep him at that figure. I don't know what the negotiating process was like. I don't know what other offers he had on the table. But, um, but yeah, I just sort of, part of me just wishes that Butler would have, would have been willing to resign rather than go to Miami because I just don't think, I just don't think Miami is that interesting a team. They're not. Even with Butler there. They're not. So. But they can be. They can be. And again, like this, like the last two days, like how the hell did Miami end up with a max player? They, yeah. they I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what Godfather Riles has, situations has in up the league. sleeve. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, the Eastern Conference has gotten pretty interesting, I think. And we haven't really talked about the Pacers, but I thought they had a, a good day. Um, I think losing Thad will hurt. But ultimately, for them to have replaced Thad and Bojan with Lamb and Brogdon, to me, was like a really nice piece of business. I mean, I love the Brogdon fit in the backcourt with Oladipo. I think he really needed somebody who could help with like a little bit more of the attacking responsibilities. Like Darren Collison could handle the ball and he could shoot. But Brogdon is just like so much more of a decisive player. Um, both in terms of pulling the trigger on his shot, but also just like attacking off of the catch. Straight line drives to the basket. He's super strong. He can defend. Uh, he can play on or off the ball. I just think those guys are going to be a really nice fit together in the backcourt. And um, for them to have kind of snuck in out of nowhere to get him when all the reporting was that Rubio was going to be their top target. I mean, Brogdon is a 10 times better fit than Rubio would have been. They also plucked TJ Warren from the Suns on draft night. That was a really underrated move that a lot of people forget about. So, yeah, the big thing to me there is can his three-point shooting sustain? Because he was like a 30% three-point shooter or even less than that coming into last season. Out of nowhere, shoots 43% from three on a pretty high volume of attempts. 
do we trust that one season sample? You know, do we think it sort of falls somewhere in the middle of that in his previous sample? Because they need him to be that type of a shooter. He like he's not going to be the guy who is handling the ball, right? Like they need him to space out. They're going to need him to like play a lot of four too. I think now that they've lost Thaddeus Young. Um, and you know the other big question there is like they drafted Goga, this this young center, um, knowing that they already had a bit of a logjam at the position with Miles Turner and Demontis Sabonis, and Kevin Pritchard basically said like Sabonis is going to start at the four; those two guys are going to play together. Uh, that duo was really good defensively last year and very very bad offensively. So can that work out? And, you know, is the long-term plan to keep both of them or to trade one of them? Um, Just like a lot of balls up in the air, I think, for that team. And ultimately, as I look toward next year, again, I don't think they're going to, like, contend for the conference crown or anything like that. Like, they're, I don't think they're on Philly's level. I don't think they're on Milwaukee's level. But they're in that next tier of teams. And obviously, you know, we'll see what happens with Toronto. But um, they're in that next tier of teams with Boston and with even like a Kawhi-less version of the Raptors, I think, belong in that tier uh, where they're going to have a chance to get to the second round. I think they'll be better, like quite a bit better actually offensively than they were last year and probably a bit worse defensively. But, uh, you know, you were talking about Philly and how you didn't know if it was positive or negative. They just got different. And I feel like that's true of Indiana as well. And I will say, as much as losing Bojan hurts, like he carried their offense after Oladipo went down. I think I would rather have Lamb at the contract they gave him, which is three years, $31 million, That's to- also a great value. Jeremy Lamb, low-key, had a really solid year for yeah. the Hornets. Yeah, yeah. Another tough one for the Hornets. Yeah, we didn't even mention that when we were talking Lamb. about who they lost. Yeah. yeah. They um, lost the two best players. So I thought both of those pickups, Lamb and Brogdon, were really, really good for the Pacers, and I thought they got you know very team-friendly deals. Yeah, I think the Pacers are still in pretty good shape. Um, and they're still, I th- believe, pretty flexible going forward. Like, I don't think they're too capped out, um, like, in the future. Uh, yeah, well, pending, you know, whatever, whether they extend Sabonis right. or, uh, you know, he turns into a restricted yeah. free agent. But The Sabonis-Turner thing will still be interesting, how they, how they manage, you know, keeping both, letting one go, turning one into a bundle of assets, and then also just whenever Oladipo gets back. Like, no one really knows how long how deep into the season they're going to be without him. If he comes yeah. back earlier than expected. And, and, and what's he going to look like right. when he comes back? Yeah. I mean, that's like important. so dependent on his explosiveness and his, his open court speed. Like um, if he's physically compromised and that obviously changes their outlook considerably. Uh, but for now I like what they did and, and I kind of think they're going to be a really interesting team moving forward. Agreed. Anybody uh, else in your mind who's just sort of like low key, no. Interesting. No, the only other interesting thing I came across today was on NBA Reddit. Someone uh, went into a deep rabbit hole and found that Jimmy Butler has now made stops in all of the cities Andrew Kanaanen uh, murdered before getting to Johnny Versace, who, of course, was in Miami. And I, I realize that's a very dark place to put it, but hey, look, NBA Twitter's talking about it. It's what the people want to hear, apparently. Um, this is actually a, a real thing, too. It, like, blew up on NBA Reddit that someone pointed out uh, the guy who killed Johnny Versace before getting to Miami uh, had crimes going in Minnesota, Chicago, Philadelphia. Eventually went to Miami and make of that what you will. Yeah. Um, it. Yeah. Yeah. Forget it. Forget <laughs> it as soon as you heard it. Tell friends and family and about this conspiracy theory. But Jimmy Butler, inadvertently or advertently, we don't know, following the footsteps of Andrew Kanan. 
Um, one, uh, <laughs> that's just, I'm just going to leave that there. I, I have nothing more to add. <laughs> like we're 75 minutes into a July one for agency pod, man. Where do you want me to go with this? Yeah, nowhere. I mean, I guess, um, I don't want to leave off quite there because <laughs> there's one more team I want to talk about. And it's, uh, it's, it's the Sacramento Kings. Okay. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in, in what they did, honestly. And Maybe I wouldn't be if it weren't like maybe it's just the Harrison Barnes contract that's bumming me out a bit. Um, but I don't know, man. Like I was really interested in the possibility of them being a landing spot for like Vucevic or Horford, even um, like getting maybe maybe not a marquee free agent, but one of the higher end free agents. But if they weren't going to get one of those guys again, they had all this cap space. They could have been a team that absorbed a contract in exchange for an asset. Like, why do they need to give Harrison Barnes four years and $85 million? I, I, I just don't... Again, this is another one where I'm like, who are you bidding against? And why did you need to retain this guy that badly that you gave out that amount of money? Like, Buddy Heald is due an extension, you know, or he's going to be a restricted free agent next summer. Um, De'Aaron Fox, a year behind him, is going to be in the same spot. Like, I know... It's nice to be a team on the come up and to have cap space. You feel like you're in that sweet spot where your young guys are developing. There's a lot of excitement and you have room to add an established veteran. I just don't see why Harrison Barnes was the guy. I don't see why Trevor Ariza was the guy. And I just think they shelled out a ton of money for guys who aren't really going to move the needle for them all that much. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And it is disappointing because... The Kings, you know, one of those bad teams that made bad decisions every year and stayed bad, finally rose from the abyss last season and and were coming, man. They were so close for, you know, a big part of the year to, to making the playoffs or at least contending for a playoff spot late into the year. Everything was kind of going right for them. And, you know, I don't think either of us thought they were going to be a player for any major free agents, but it definitely seemed like they spent their money like a team who just wants to be mediocre again. And that's what's disappointing, considering that it did look like they were building something sustainable and and with eyes on bigger prizes, you know, throughout the year. Yeah, I don't know. It just... It, it, they almost accidentally stumbled into this successful rebuild. Um, I mean, whatever. Maybe not accidental. Like, it, great job getting healed in the boogie trade. Uh, great job drafting Fox. But... Uh, you know, having those guys blossom at the same time and just like, uh, you know, like finally having some excitement around this team, like making an abbreviated playoff push, like all this stuff that made it seem like they were trending in the right direction. Um, and, you know, even something like, like the Bulls matching their offer sheet on Zach Levine, you know, kind of saving them from themselves there. Like, I don't know that any, any of those moves suggested that like the front office had turned a corner, but... I was still sort of hopeful that they would they would have a little bit more sense than I think they displayed. And even, like, Corey Joseph is a player I really, really like. And I think he's going to help them actually a lot. He'll stabilize their second unit. I think he can actually play alongside Fox a bit because he can guard twos. But to give him $13 million a year to be a backup, I just, you know, and, like, to give Trevor Ariza $12 million a year to back up Harrison Barnes, who you're giving $20-plus million a year when... You still have, you know, uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, who's probably going to play a little bit of three. Like, uh, it just, they've created like some log jams at these positions where I feel like they'd be better served developing their young players. And now I feel like they're going to feel 
committed to playing these guys because they've given them all this money, and I just don't see the point of it. They had a very king summer. <laughs> if someone told me a year from now they would have this summer a year later, but like, yeah, that sounds like the Kings. Mm-hmm. Again, we were misled by the promise of this, as you put it, perhaps accidentally successful rebuild, or at least what looked like the early stages of one. And, and look, maybe maybe it still works out for them. Obviously, those young players are still in the fold, but I do like you worry about um, like even Barnes. It's kind of like Barnes is now going to soak up a lot of touches that aren't going to Fox or Heald or Bagley. Bagley, yeah. Who had a quietly really good rookie season. Like It it seems like the Kings took a step backwards the last couple days. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. They could still be better next year than they were this past season. I just... um, I don't like what they did to their long-term outlook because these weren't... Like, if they were signing these guys at this annual value but for short-term deals, I would have been okay with it. But there's a lot of term on all these deals, right? Three years for Kojo, four years for Barnes, three years for Dwayne Dedman, which honestly, out of all those contracts, I might like that one the best. Uh, I just, I feel like, you know, like giving out that kind of term to guys who I don't really see as, or I didn't see as part of their long-term future uh, made me scratch my head a little bit and made me kind of disappointed. Agreed. All right. This time I think we're really done. Unless (laughs) you've got any conspiracy theories to, to share about NBA free agents uh, footsteps. I mean, aside from like the the nefarious Clippers lobby infecting the media and <laughs> Woj's Woj's conspiracy against the Lakers. No, I think uh, I think we can end there for now and I'm sure we'll be back on soon because given uh, the breakneck speed at which this offseason is already moving, uh, it just seems inevitable that something crazy is going to happen in the next 48 hours or so. Yeah, well, we will be back with you know, by that time, probably just more of a Kawhi reaction podcast. But whether it's Kawhi finally making his decision or something else in the next couple of days, we will be back at some point this week. So for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cachado, Pound the Rock.